No study of the Civil War is complete without a visit to the Museum of the Confederacy in Richmond, Virginia, one of the nation's foremost repositories of Civil War artifacts. That museum is also, in many cases, at the center of issues of the meaning of the Confederate flag. We'll talk about those issues with John Kosky of the museum and also author of the Confederate battle flag when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Have you let your website go stale? Wish you didn't have to wait for your web developer to return your call when you want to update content? You don't have to. Now you can easily and instantly manage your own website content using affordable Avalar technology. Avalar is a website development and hosting company that provides turnkey internet solutions for companies like yours that need to stay focused on core business. Avalar gives you the power to control your website and make updates and additions in real time without having to learn HTML or other complicated programming tools. Websites powered by Avalar feature capabilities that attract more customers and enhance relationships with existing customers. Avalar offers a multitude of leading-edge solutions, including lead generation and referral tracking, shopping carts and payment processing, membership management, and search engine optimization, to name a few. Take advantage of the full power of the Internet using Avalar technology at www.avalar.com. That's A-V-A-L-A-R.com. Vitality is a natural expression of health, success, and fulfillment. And yet it's rare to meet people bubbling with vitality. That's because most of us push ourselves too hard. And when we trigger the internal alarms that tell us to change our diets, attitudes, or activities, we ignore them. Allowing outside pressures to override our internal alarms undermines our health, sabotages our success, and limits our potential. If you're ready to reclaim your natural vitality, to begin living a life you love, visit thevitalyou.com. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. To speak with our show hosts or guests during the live show, call us toll-free in North America, 888-514-2100. Everywhere else, call 001-858-268-3068. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today with John Kosky, author of The Confederate Battle Flag, America's Most Embattled Emblem. John, we've been talking about the history of the flag and have gotten to the critical era when the flag becomes intertwined with the civil rights struggles of the 50s and 60s. Let me put you on the spot with uh, a, a tough one here. There's a quote uh, supposedly by Dante, but I've seen it uh, attributed to other people, that says the hottest place in hell is reserved for those who are neutral in times of moral crisis. <laughs> Actually, Dante says the people who are neutral are chased by insects, I think, around the outside of hell in Canto 3. But that's how it's quoted on the Internet. And now I'm going to read to you from page uh, X of your preface. Mm -hmm. Most people who follow the debates over the Confederate flag are emotionally or ideologically engaged with the issue. I do not share that emotional or ideological engagement. Little ellipsis here, then. After considerable angst, I have concluded that this detachment from the emotions surrounding the issue is a virtue. Well, are you being neutral in a, on a moral issue that, that you really need to take a stand on? I think that uh, almost everyone who is involved in this issue uh, over the years and can now uh, takes a stand. And as a result, we, we have a lot of opinions out there without much perspective of it. 
I, but, I, but I'm following the evidence. I'm not uh, staking out a neutral position, I, and I wouldn't if if I felt that the evidence led inexorably and definitively to one point or the other. If there were, in a sense, a smoking gun, and of course the moral issue here is whether or not this is a, a symbol of racism or a symbol of heritage or hate. Uh, the issue is often framed. I mean, it's a, in a dichotomy, but uh, the evidence does not is not an, unambiguous, and it also reflects my my personal proclivity about the study of history and wh- where the evidence takes me here specifically, which is that this is a very complex issue. It isn't black or white. It isn't a it's a moral issue, perhaps, but it is not a moral issue that can be dis- discussed safely and accurately in dichotomous right or wrong, black and white terms and to do so i think is wrong in in a sense i suppose immoral that uh, we and, and it certainly is unproductive most importantly we we tend to want to discuss this in terms of heritage or hate when clearly both are accurate if what we mean is that they these meanings these interpretations arise from very clearly uh defined events i mean there were historical reasons why some people see it as a symbol of hate some people see people see it as a symbol of heritage and if we choose one or the other, we're necessarily oversimplifying a complex history. We're making something clear when, in fact, in reality, it's ambiguous. And I, I think that's wrong. And, and I'll say you, your book goes uh, for over 300 pages on the history and the, the many ramifications of this issue. I think it's a, it's a wonderful book. I recommend all our listeners take a look at it uh, for a, a really thorough and enlightening uh, exposition on this subject. But let me play devil's advocate here, just uh, for the purposes of entertaining uh, one another. The so far you've, you've explained how the Civil War soldiers adopted the flag, how it represented their interests, how it was something that they clung to in battle. Then after the war, so as far as we've gotten discussing its history, I will argue, for purposes of argument, this clearly is uh, a symbol of Confederate heritage, of Southern heritage. It has something to do with the political causes of the war certainly but it's not an explicitly racist emblem and it's outrageous that our uh, pusillanimous public leaders are refusing to fly at both state capitals well uh, it depends on what you think is appropriate over a state capital uh, it's, it's one part of confederate heritage one part of southern heritage state capitals state flags represent more than just a four-year period in the history as important as that is uh, it and this people will make the argument frequently that it's a symbol of history and that to take it off of a state flag or a state capital is to erase history. I uh, I find it curious that relegating flags to history museums is considered erasing history. I thought that's why history museums existed to preserve history. Uh, why is it that a is it necessary to have something on a, on a symbol of sovereignty, a state flag, or on a state on a dome of capital, in order to to preserve or even respect history? The, um, that, that's a political statement. It's a it's a statement uh, that is on a state flag or a state capital. It's not necessarily. It could be a symbol, a, a statement of history, but it oftentimes is as a testament to balances of power uh, within the within that political body. Well, let me. Oh, go ahead. No, please. I'm fine. Uh, I'll now uh, quickly switch hats and say it's clear that the stars and bars, misnaming the uh, sure. the cross flag, 
are is a symbol of racism of an era of slavery it's an offense to african americans and indeed to all right thinking americans and it's completely objectionable it should be displayed anywhere uh any more than you would other than perhaps in very closeted away history museums but like the swastika we would we we should not be showing this in places where people appear proud of it the something you alluded to earlier is that um the symbol of a proud heritage and pride of a certain segment of our population uh, that has been misused by Ku Klux Klansmen and other people like that, whom we rightfully as a society hold in contempt. Why is it then that we're allowing those groups to define the flag? Uh, that to me is a, is a very strong argument, and, and I'm not exactly playing with you here, uh, the devil's advocate, uh, because of that, that argument that the Klan somehow defined the flag and we allow them to do it. Uh, ignores the fact that among the other people who used it, have used it as a racist symbol are not the extremists, but the mainstream white Southerners in the area of, uh, in the era of, uh, of segregation. It wasn't just the Klan that used it that way. But so the, the argument cuts two ways here. That is, uh, for those who say that um, it is a racist symbol and we shouldn't uh, allow this flag of the Klan to have the prominence that we do, I would say it's not. We, we, you're right. We shouldn't allow the flag of the Klan, but we shouldn't forfeit this flag to the Klan. Heritage groups have, have fought uh, and tried to condemn the Klan uh, as misusing the flag, and I think they're correct in doing so, but they then confront the evidence that ordinary white Southerners are the ones who use it as a symbol, if not of, of racism, at least of white supremacy and segregation. That's a little harder to explain away, I think, uh, in, in, at least in my opinion, in my view of the history of the of the flag. But once again, I return ultimately answering both of those those points of view is complexity. It's not either or. It's it's both, and and to we we therefore need to find a balance between acknowledging its its role as a symbol of heritage for those people who are part of that heritage, but not in a way that makes it, in a sense, an imperial symbol that it that it um, is supposed to uh, that that it is the symbol of a, of a of a political society that whose members do not all share the reverence for it. Uh, finding the happy middle ground that it can be a historical symbol. Uh, flown in unambiguously historical and memorial ways among those people who want to to memorialize the Confederacy, but isn't forcing people who don't revere it to revere it, as it is the case when it's on a state flag or a state capital. There, uh, there is, I think, middle ground. And and now I've, I've taken off all my extremist hats, and I'm just talking to you again. Uh, I, I, I think you make a good point. You quote a lawyer uh, resolving one of the school cases, uh, students wearing Confederate flag cases, uh, describing how he urged both sides in that controversy to see things from the other's viewpoint, to recognize that the flag has multiple meanings. And it really comes down in some ways to the issues that generated the war itself, the issues of majority and minority rights. Do we let a majority fly a flag that may offend a minority, or do we let a minority's sensitivities define what a majority can do? Either solution has, has obvious problems. It, it is a question of accommodation. It's a question of symbolic accommodation, as it was, in, as you say, in the war itself, and political accommodation um, of minorities and majorities living together, as well as what uh, it's about the power of symbols as well, and, and the power of 
and, and the way we remember history. And a lot of it has to do with, with memory and history here, and, and whether symbols of history need to have uh, need to be displayed with public sponsorship in order to still be to be acknowledging facts of, of history. The um, but the quote from the, the lawyer is, is kind of the valedictory of the of the book. It's such a great statement of common sense, and it, it it's I guess. I gave it a position of prominence at the end of the book because I think it is the most clear statement of recognizing the full history of this flag, as he said, to... Um, uh, it also states the ethics of this. I mean, this is a historical issue, but it's also an ethical issue. Do not assume, uh, when you if, you if you must fly the flag, understand that not everybody reads into it what you do and sees it as a benign symbol. On the other hand, if you see it as a malignant symbol... Don't make the mistake of assuming that the person who's displaying it means you harm. Don't prejudge that other person and the and the motive for flying that flag. That is a, a form of prejudice. If I have it uh, on my T-shirt and you think it's a racist symbol, I should recognize that you have a reason and a very good historically grounded reason for viewing it as a racist symbol because, by God, it has been used as a symbol of racism. But please don't do me the disservice of automatically assuming that I'm a racist because that's your opinion. It's not only counterproductive, it's not very polite, and it's certainly um, it, it's not very charitable. I think a lot of what is happening, why this debate is, is so divisive in this country, is that we, we tend to polarize things that don't need to be polarized. And we, and we at times are very uncharitable towards each other. We, we, we think the worst of each other's motives. And a lot of the debates over the battle flag, especially when these, when they become public issues, as you were alluding to earlier in the case of the state of Georgia and the Georgia state flag, which is in a sense continuing as there are people trying to restore the battle flag to the state flag of, of Georgia. But we, we tend to think immediately the worst of our fellow man in this country. And, and I find it so unnecessary. It, I, I concur with that. I, I was in 1989. I was studying at Harvard. It's obligatory for me to mention that in every show. Uh, and when the the Confederate flag issue arose there, when a student flew it from her dorm room, and I can recall seeing it, it was quite uh, spectacular on campus uh, in the gray Massachusetts winter to see this, this bright red banner. And it was challenged by uh, another student who began flying a swastika out of her window not because she shared the views of the Third Reich, but because she was trying to convey the, the shock and offense that the other student's banner presented. Right. Uh, and she did it. The, the, the swastika certainly offended a lot of people. Um, the community was pretty well polarized over that issue. Yeah, that's I actually addressed that in the book. The um, yeah, probably like reliving old times when you were reading it. The, it was in the last third of the book or so is dedicated to the controversies that we've sort of danced around today. That um, because those controversies, I think, are not only the the history of the flag in our own day, but uh, they reveal a lot about the previous history. That is why there were flags on why their battle flag appeared on state flags and on state symbols and where they were on monuments. That is, how they got there in the first place to be challenged by the NAACP is a piece of the history of the flag in the early to mid-20th century. And the controversies surrounding them and the way this flag has been at the center of controversy is the modern history of the flag. For those who say that the flag is the flag of the soldier only, and that's the only meaning that they defined it for all times, 
it's, I find that to be wishful thinking, and certainly it would be easier on all of us, especially Civil War historians who want to be able to fix this flag in, in time, 1861-65. One of the most important things, parts in the history of the flag, the moments in the history of the flag, is the furling of them in, 18, in 1865 when they didn't stay furled. If they had stayed furled, we could argue about the meaning of the flag during the war as a practical symbol, as an ideological symbol on the national flags. But the fact is it wasn't furled, and if we're to understand, which is what my book is really trying to do, is trying to give us as American citizens today the information, the background, the perspective we need to understand why there are so many different perspectives on the flag, we can't ignore the history from 1865 to, to today. We can't act as if the Ku Klux Klan didn't use it. We can't pretend that the Dixiecrats didn't use it. We can't pretend that um, this sacred symbol to some people became a profaned symbol in the hands of uh, beach towel manufacturers and people who make t-shirts with death's heads over the saltier and well, the Dukes of Hazard and all the different uh, incarnations of the flag and different meanings as a symbol of individual rebellion, hell-raising and fierce independence uh, those uses and have given the flag meanings they've created strong impressions that affect how people react to it today and it's simply not realistic to ignore them as much as we might want to. Well, I think that's very well put, and uh, I will once again recommend to all our listeners that they take a look at this book, uh, The Confederate Battle Flag, America's Most Embattled Emblem, uh, so that the next time the issue comes up in your community, and most assuredly it will sooner or later, almost anywhere in the country, uh, that everyone can be prepared to discuss it a little more dispassionately and more intelligently. You mentioned, uh, a last point I wanted to make, share with you is, you mentioned the Museum of the Confederacy in Richmond, uh, where you work, has the largest collection of flags. When is the museum open? What does it cost to get in there? We're open uh, seven days a week, 10 to 5, Monday through uh, Saturday, and 12 to 5 on Sunday. The I believe it's, we also have the White House of the Confederacy. I'm actually sitting in the upstairs room of the White House of the Confederacy, the executive mansion of Jefferson Davis and his family, which has been the two floors below me, restored to its wartime appearance. So the combination for the White House and the museum, I believe it's $10 for adults, all kinds of uh, breaks for uh, uh, school kids uh, of all ages and seniors and for groups of 10 or more. But we have a museum building with our military and civilian artifact collections, one of the most definitive in the world, as well as the restored executive mansion. Well, John Kowski, thanks for being our guest today. It's been a fascinating talk. Again, I recommend uh, your book, America's Most Embattled Emblem, the Confederate Battle, Battle Flag. Recommend it highly. Uh, appreciate your time. This is Jerry Prokopovich on Civil War Talk Radio.